Welcome to episode six of The Grade, the Northeast Charter Schools Network podcast. Once again, I am Joe. Hi there, I'm Jess. And today we're going to be talking about the origins of New York charter schools and how far we've come in almost 20 years here. And we are joined by Bob Bellafuri. Bob is our communications consultant. He's an advisor, sort of a Yoda-like figure for us. He's spent the last 30 years in and around New York State government. He was a senior aide to Governor George Pataki, and he was the first head of the SUNY Charter Schools Institute. Thanks for being here with us, Bob. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Now, Joe, you said, did you say Yoda-like or Yodel-like? Yoda. Yoda-like. So like the wise man from Star Wars, not the chocolatey... Well, he's not a man. Technically, they never have revealed what species he is. uh, that's, (laughs) That's true. But, uh, but 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 not the chocolatey chocolate cake cream filled <laughs> rolled up snack. No, <laughs> but we're hoping that your answers to some of these questions are as delicious as those would be. So great segue. What, 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 and that <laughs> we're off to a great start. And folks, that's how charter schools became law. Bob, we're we are actually really glad that you are here with us today. Um, I'll just do. My quick um, impression of Bob, I came on to the Northeast Charter Schools Network about two and a half years ago, and the first person I met from the network was Bob. And I went into that meeting thinking I was okay with where I was professionally, but maybe I'd be interested in this new role. And after meeting with Bob, I was completely sold and knew I wanted the job right away, um, that I understood his um, advocacy for education reform and making schools better for kids, but also thought that the um, connection to politics was interesting. And he told me that these were just good people to work with. And he was right. So um, Bob sold me on charter schools immediately. And I went home and I was like, oh God, now I really want this job. So here we are today. <laughs> and Bob really does have a lot of knowledge about the movement. So thanks for being here. And we want to start out with really just a very basic question. If you could bring us back to about 20 years ago, um, what was the genesis for bringing charter schools to New York State? I know we're not the first state that had them, but what was the thinking like back then when we started to talk about that um, here at home? Well, in the um, in the mid '90s, you started to see charter laws passed in various states. Minnesota being the first, uh, Michigan, uh, Massachusetts, District of Columbia, number of states. Colorado started to have started to you know this movement towards. Um, a real form of robust public school choice. Uh, in New York, uh, the governor at the time, my boss, uh, Governor George Pataki, was always always had been uh, enamored of that idea as a way to give uh, to create choice for parents and families who didn't normally have it. Uh, uh, so he created a team uh, that that uh, uh, included me and uh, his education aide at the time, a guy named Jeff Lovell, and uh, his chief counsel on education, a fellow who's now a judge, Richard Platkin, and charged us with putting together a charter school law, uh, which or a bill, which you know, which we did. We researched all these other states and saw which ones worked well, which ones didn't. Um, th- but the real impetus for it was. Uh, you know, we had tried just about everything to try to improve public education. More money, merit pay for teachers, uh, uh, aid for high-needs districts, everything except real choice. And real choice that was going to had a some kind of uh, penalty for a school district 
that uh, that parents opted out of, and that's why you know money files follows the child uh, in New York's charter school law and in many charter school laws across the country. Uh, but the impetus was uh, a lot of urban schools were, were failing. Uh, a lot of people had choice who could afford it, but there wasn't really a whole lot of choice for people who could not afford it. Um, so, you know, that led the governor to put together this team and, and you know, really push to draft what he hoped would be one of the strongest laws in the, in the country, which it ended up being. And just a follow-up to that, what was the, um, what was the debate like back then? Um, <laughs> what has, I mean, this wasn't in any of the questions that we sent you, but I'm curious, what was it like, how um, heated was the rhetoric back then? Is it more so now? I, I, I can't believe, uh, Jess, that you're throwing one of my media training tricks right at me. Which is asking a question that wasn't on the homework. Um, well, I'm sure you can remember 20 years ago. <laughs> I, 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 uh, there's no question. Look, it was. Um, I don't think it was treated very seriously uh, at the time uh, by particularly the the uh, Speaker Silver, who at the time was the Speaker of the Assembly, only a couple of years into his tenure, uh, and you know the regular school establishment. Uh, there was not, you know, there was not a big uh, public debate over it. There was not a lot of controversy. The bills had been around for a couple of years. We ought to remember that in 1997, a year before the law was eventually passed, uh, there was a bill sponsored in the legislature by uh, a black assemblyman from Brooklyn named Roger Green and an assemblyman at the time named John Faso, who's now running for Congress uh, in the Capital Region. Um, so there had been a bill for a couple of years. Never got never got a whole lot of attention. Um, we put together a fairly robust outreach uh, program to likely supporters. We we dealt with uh, we worked with pastors. Uh, one pastor we worked with at the time was former Congressman Floyd Flake, very influential uh, uh, Democratic, uh, really bipartisan political figure from Queens. Uh, reached out to other pastors across the state and across the city to try to build momentum and talk about the bill. But frankly, it was not, it was not that, you know, elevated a debate uh, at the time. And, uh, but everybody knew the governor was dead serious about trying to help this bill become, become a law. And, you know, you may remember how it eventually happened which was after the election of 1998, the governor had just gotten reelected, and the legislature wanted his first pay raise in 10 years. And the governor could have asked for anything he wanted in exchange for the pay raise. And what he put on the table was the charter school law. Uh, it, started with, um, it started with the speaker, of the, with Shelley Silver, willing to do a pilot program that would have, are you ready? Allow six schools in the state. That's that's where Impactful. he started. Six yeah. schools, six schools statewide. That's the real choice you guys are probably thinking about. If we just had six more schools, if we, if we this had, would change everything. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Right. If we could get uh, you know, 8 900 kids into better schools, that would be great. Right. So, um, no, it was a joke. Uh, uh, he didn't know how serious the governor was, and the governor eventually pushed and pushed and we got 100 new schools in the first law, and uh, we got uh, a separate authorizer aside from the state education department, which was the SUNY trust is a really critically important part because at the time, the State Board of Regents and, and the, uh, uh, the Education Department looked at, uh, looked at charter schools as, you know, something of, you know, something of a pariah. You know, they'd rather, uh, they'd rather wake up in the middle of the night and eat a jalapeno 
then do charters. And um, <clears throat> only allowing the state education department to do charters would have been like, you know, letting the Yankees control the Red Sox farm system, right? You, they never would have produced anything anything worthwhile. So having SUNY in the mix uh, was really the, the, the move that helped New York's charter law become so good. But the governor essentially traded it for a pay raise. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and <clears throat> it, it got a lot more votes than it would have gotten otherwise because, because of what was on the table. Because I think at the time, you had a lot of members of the legislature, particularly the assembly, who didn't want to cross uh, the teachers unions who were, you know, opposed. Short answer was the rhetoric was not that hot because the issue hadn't really been that public. Right. And ultimately they wanted that raise. So interesting. <laughs> it's, it's amazing what a legislator will do for money. <laughs> legal money. I'm not, not, I'm not saying illegal money, just legal money. <laughs> Additional salary. Um, so you mentioned, you know, working on the law and everything. How did you come to get involved working at the authorizer? You had mentioned SUNY came into the fold and you worked for the Charter Schools Institute. Yeah, it was interesting. Well, so the law got passed uh, December 17th, uh, 1998 at 3.30 in the morning was the final passage in the assembly. And uh, SUNY, to its credit, uh, took the ball and ran with it. About they were very aggressive and assertive about uh, and smart about trying to establish a really strong authorizing office, and it was it was the trustees who created an idea. Mostly two guys, Randy Daniels, who was on the board at the time, and and uh, Ed Cox, um, who came up with the idea of creating an institute, something that would be an authorizing office, staffing it up robustly with smart people, and uh, having that be you know really the leader in. Uh, pushing for smart authorization, coming up with smart plans and rules on how to do it in standards, uh, and very robust process for, uh, for evaluating applications. Uh, so they started the institute, and there was a, a fellow who ran it for a couple of months and then moved on. Uh, so actually, technically, I was the second president of the uh -huh. Children's Schools Institute. The first one was there for about six months, uh, and then uh, uh, he moved on uh, to seek his fortune elsewhere. Um, and I ran, I ran the suit for about the, the next two and a half years. Uh, but it, it happened because uh, the governor was very committed to making it work. Uh, he trusted me with the issue. Um, I didn't know really much about education policy, if anything, but we were able to re uh, access the best brains in the country for, um, to to staff it up and rely on people with expertise. Uh, so it, it it's one of those things where you never planned for it. It just sort of happened. Uh, and the governor asked me if I would go over there, and the SUNY trustees agreed, and there it went. We we, we had a very good run. The, the day I the day I showed up at the Charter Schools Institute was also the same day we had ninety applications for schools in the first full year. So it was so it was me and uh, four thousand boxes of paper at, around the same time. Um, we had a skeleton staff in the very beginning, but over time we were able to staff up uh, with a mix of people from regular ed, uh, from school districts, and also some of the smartest charter school people you could find. The current uh, head of the Charter Schools Institute, Susie Barker, uh, we hired from the Massachusetts Department of Ed. Um, uh, we were able to recruit Doug Lamov uh, from Academy for the Pack Rim uh, in, in the Boston area, uh, who has since written uh, several books on uh, instruction called Teach Like a Champion. He's now sort of the global guru uh, of the non-official ed school way of uh, helping teachers get better. Uh, so we built a really robust staff. And um, 
and did some good work for the couple of years. And then eventually I got pulled out and asked to rejoin the governor's office in 2002, which I did. Um, but again, like, like a lot of things, it just sort of happened. Mm -hmm. So this is a big question. Um, and I'm really curious <laughs> to see what you think when you, so you start, um, from the ground and help draft the bill that becomes a law. Then you work at CSI and now we're almost 20 years into this. What do you think the movement has lived up to its promise? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I think. Look, I think it has, and and I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, and let's just start with what some of the other guys say. The other guys will say that uh, charter schools are no panacea, right? and I love that because panacea is a ninth grade vocabulary word that nobody ever uses except in the negative. It's no panacea. Well, no one ever said it would be. Uh, no one ever said that uh, that providing more public school choice would fix all the problems uh, in the public educational system. Uh, you know, but here's you know here's what it promised to do. There were six purposes of the law set out. One was to improve student learning and achievement, and it has certainly done that. You see studies from Credo. You see other data that show that kids in charter schools. Uh, learn more than overall, not in every single instance, but 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 in the aggregate, uh, learn more than they do, do better on state measurements than uh, than kids in regular public schools. Uh, two, uh, increase learning opportunities for all students with a special emphasis on expanded learning experiences for students at risk of academic failure. That's the second purpose of the law. Uh, clearly, it has done that by providing parents and families with choice, choice of uh, schools closer to their house, schools with uh, longer school years and longer school days. Most of the charter schools in the state have extra, uh, or many of them have longer school days and longer school years that account to you know, two months more of school a year just by building in extra time during the day and adding a couple of weeks on either end of the normal 180-day school year. Uh, Charters overwhelmingly serve kids who are uh, who are poor and minority. The, the the percentage of kids who are considered below the poverty level of charter schools is much higher than than the other schools in the neighborhood. And these are parents who can't afford to to move to pay the tuition of suburban uh, housing. It's, that's essentially tuition, house prices and taxes, and better suburban school districts, or can't afford to send their kids to private school. These are these are these are parents who really have no other uh, mobility choices. Um, Three, to encourage the use of different innovative teaching methods. Teaching methods. Uh, there's, there's no question that's occurred. Uh, teachers and charters have much more flexibility to try new things. They are uh, much more on the leading edge of using technology uh, in their classrooms. Um, uh, and they are not necessarily beholden to this old sort of agrarian method of a school day in a school year. Uh, created new professional opportunities for teachers, school, administra school administrators, and other school personnel. Well, we've opened how many schools? 175 schools? In, I forget the exact number. You guys can fill me in, but it's... Right now, there's yeah. like 256 or 54. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm way off. Um, uh, that's created more opportunities for teachers, especially young teachers, right, who can't quite crack into the, into the regular district system. Um, uh, providing parents and students with expanded choices. Well, by definition, it's been expanded choices, right? 250-something of them. Um, and it's provided schools with a method to change from rule-based to performance-based accountability systems 
by holding the schools established under this article accountable for meeting measurable results. Right? There is no question that's happened. That's what the Charter Schools Institute has done extraordinarily well, by and large. Uh, these schools have strict sort of accountability plans. They have metrics they need to meet. They have, uh, they have data points they need to, they need to accomplish um, uh, as opposed to what happens in the regular district system, which is if your school is failing, uh, you just tend to get more money and not really an impetus to do anything, uh, do anything different. Um, you know, it's funny. Last, last week, uh, last week or the week before, I heard um, Mayor de Blasio in New York City talk about how uh, charter schools have failed in their mission to help district schools improve. Which is why I went back to the law. Actually, it was sent to me by, uh, by a former colleague of mine at the Institute who said, you know, there's a lot of hooey. Charter schools were never intended to lead to districts getting better. Uh, and it's exactly right. Charters were intended to help the kids who went there get, get better educations. The doors are always open for districts to go ask, how are you doing that? And depressingly few of them do. There are some cases where there are, like in the Bronx, you see with Bronx, Bronx Charter School for Excellence works very closely in tandem with uh, city schools in the area. So there's good partnership going on there and in some other places. Um, but if you're asking, you know, have charters uh, lived up to their promise, I don't think there's any question they have. They haven't been perfect, but nothing, you know, nothing is perfect. But overall, they've They've achieved, uh, the charters have achieved what they set out to do, which is why you see them rapidly popular, uh, thousands of kids on, on waiting lists, and the clamor for more, better schools continues to grow. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So you mentioned how, you know, there are thousands on waiting lists and everything, but earlier you mentioned how charter schools when they first came to be in New York, there wasn't really a big hubbub because it wasn't that public of an issue. Now it is a very big public issue. So how do you think the state and national elections are going to affect the movement? You know, I, I gave up national politics for the last part of Lent, and I've been trying to <laughs> continue that sort of American political abstinence ever since. Um, look, from from... The person most responsible for giving charter schools the boost, both in terms of policy and politics nationally, was Bill Clinton. Um, he got behind it in a very big way, um, you know, as sort of a, at the time you called them new Democrats, right? He was like a centrist Democrat uh, and pushed very big for charters and... Um, and really helped incentivize states. Give, he gave Democrats the cover to support them and gave Republicans the running room to do it. Because in charters in the beginning were largely uh, pushed by Republican governors, which of course is a, I mean, I loved it as an odd bedfellows issue because here I was working for a Republican governor, walking into the South Bronx, meeting with a pastor, saying, a pastor who wants to start a school for the kids in his neighborhood, and saying, my guy's got the answer, not the guys you've been voting for for your whole life. Um, uh, so Clinton really, so Clinton, uh, you know, really pushed it, uh, Bush 43 continued the push was probably even more robust about it than Clinton and Obama has continued, uh, continued the trend. Uh, the, of all the things that, uh, forced me to give up American politics over the last couple of months, the thing that might've bothered me the most when it comes to education is watching Hillary Clinton completely 
do a backflip on charters or a flip-flop on charters in order to um, uh, curry favor with the teachers' unions. Uh, you know, no president, uh, we've got the last three presidents, the last six presidential terms have all been pro-charter presidential terms. I'm not sure where it's going to go next. Um, uh, I can't figure out what Donald Trump thinks about anything. Um, and uh, what Hillary, Trin- Hillary Clinton says about charters scares me. Uh, because it fits into the, I'm all for charters as long as they look like public, regular district public schools. And the whole point about charters was to not look like regular district public schools. They were to be something different. Um, so if you stifle their ability to, uh, to change on the fly or to innovate or to, to, uh, to modify their programs to meet the needs of their students and parents, well then, you know, why do they have to exist at all? You could just have Bill de Blasio's recovery school boondoggle of a system in the city. Um, so for charters to thrive, they really have to have the ability to be different. They really have to have the freedom to have extended school days, extended school years, modify their curricula, uh, modify their teaching methods, and not be beholden to cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all district rules. So uh, so I, I'm, I'm scared by both. I'm scared by Trump because I have no idea what he thinks. And I'm scared by Hillary Clinton because of what she says she thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's looking a little grim. <laughs> how, about, how about in New York State? What do you think? Um, or even New York City, like in the future. Look, look in, in, in New York State, you've had, you've had four governors in a row who have been very strong charter proponents. George Pataki, Elliot Spitzer raised the cap the first time. David Patterson, uh, who was initially, interestingly, an uh, anti-charter. Uh, and then uh, in 1998, we had an event at a, at a school in his district. Uh, and, you know, he confessed to being, to being a convert. Uh, uh, David Patterson, uh, you know, was pro-charter. So, um, uh, you know, and then Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, has been very, very strongly pro-charter. Um, whether it's because he believes in them or because Bill de Blasio doesn't and he wants to give Bill de Blasio a hard time, I don't really care. Um, uh, he's, been, he's been a very good friend of the charter movement and very good friend of charter schools. And um, uh, I think that shows a, a, a lot of wisdom on his part, both political wisdom and educational policy wisdom. Um, I, I, I think it's going to be um, very hard for someone to be governor and not see the value that charters are brought to families all across the state, strengthening communities, uh, empowering parents, increasing uh, parents' economic and educational mobility and that of kids, um, and, uh, and somehow say it's, it's not a good idea. The legislature continues to be, uh, continues to be a challenge primarily because that's where charter opponents have the most influence. And, uh, you know, the teachers' unions uh, are a little bit like Dracula. You know, they'll be, they were here before you came in, they'll be here after you go, and all they have to do is wait you out. Um, uh, luckily, this past year, we were able to beat back some extraordinarily bad ideas that probably would have uh, killed the charter movement, if not now, then over the next couple of years. Um <coughs> So I, I remain, you know, I remain optimistic. 
uh, I remain hopeful, uh, but also cautious because, you know, you have to have somebody, you have to have somebody, uh, uh, you have to have a century watching the, uh, you know, watching the front at all times because uh, we remain, you know, under tremendous peril uh, legislatively. Um, uh, you know, interestingly, though, he, here's a fascinating thing about charters politically, and I think this is what attracted me to it as a political issue. Uh, and uh, for all the things that George Pataki did in 12 years, this is the one initiative that's going to have the longest lasting impact, which is why I wanted to dive into this with both feet. Uh, charters have created a constituency now. There are, there are, there are parents and families from, you know, Riverhead out to Buffalo that, um, uh, that now have this option and have this choice and love this option and love this choice and love their school. It's very hard to do things to roll that back. Uh, once, you know, once people, I mean, the, the hardest thing to do in government is to take something away from somebody that they used to have. And uh, I think if... Um, if, they found, if, if there was a move by the legislature or any governor to try to do this, try to scale back the law, shut down these schools, impair their ability to operate in some serious way, there would be a huge political blowback. And, um, and that, that's, you know, that's called making a long-lasting change in, in public policy and in educational policy. Look at the Common Core. Everybody went crazy over the Common Core, and now people are rolling it back left and right. Right, it's a big, you know, it's a big switchback now to a, a an old an old way of doing things. It'd be very difficult to do with charters. Great, Bob. That was actually a very good last note. But is there anything else that you want to leave us with? Any more closing thoughts before we uh, cap this interview? <laughs> well, here's uh, yeah. Here's what I want to say. I um, every time every every time I meet with a school. I meet in a school, I meet with parents, or I meet with a board, and I work with several of them. Um, uh, I am constantly impressed, almost bowled over, by the level of commitment and caring that folks involved in charters have for what they do. Um, uh, when, I uh, when I was running the institute, uh, I used to tell people that every application was an act of love and every approval was an act of faith. Uh, and I find that uh, almost all the people in whom we put, in whom we have this, we put this faith of educating these kids really deserves it. Um, I also really appreciate the work that uh, that Nesson does to try to act as a uh, act as a um, as a force field around those schools to protect them and make sure that the legislature and the policymakers in Albany understand. Everything good that's going on, and what would be risked if, uh, if they gave into uh, you know their darker angels on this stuff. So I, I I I'm 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 incredibly psyched after almost 20 years to see how far this has come, uh, and gratified to know that I was able to play a little part in it. So that's uh, so that's been fun, and I appreciate you taking some time to have me on. Yes, and we appreciate you stopping by. Thank you. This was long overdue, but we're glad we got it done because it's been years of saying we need to spread your wisdom a little bit more. So thank you. Well, uh, happy to come back uh, whenever you want, whenever we can arrange our schedules. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Yes. And uh, so thank you again to Bob. And in the accompanying blog post with this podcast on extracreditblog.org, we'll have a... Uh, 
nice post from Bob about progressivism and Mayor de Blasio and some other stuff for you. So, thanks. Thanks.